now that I'm wired, <laughs> wirelessly wired. Uh, this is week seven. We only have two more after this. This is two more after. And those of you who have stayed with it this long, we've saved the best to last. I have been looking forward to this session, actually this one and the next two, because um, we've looked at all the different, we've looked at just about every part of speech except for verbs and things related to verbs. And so um, what we've seen so far are, you know, we looked at nouns and saw inflection, how it, it uh, tells how the word is used by the suffix it puts on the end, right? So we know what, what inflection is. It's a change to a word that, te- that tells you how it's used. And we've seen how the flexibility uh, of that gives us the opportunity for emphasis and nuance and for precision. And uh, we see it take place with nouns and with pronouns and with adjectives. And we've just seen that, you know, a noun in Greek is like a noun in English, by and large, but the way you determine how to use it is different. So we've seen that it's had uh, the uh, the effect or the, the use of the word is the same, but the way it's used or how we know how it's used is different. And we found that that Greek excels English in just about every way, you know, with precision and, and preciseness, the, the, uh, the um, exactness of what, it, uh, what it's saying. But, you know, a pronoun is still a pronoun, and a noun is still a noun, and an adjective is still an adjective, and all this kind of stuff. Now we've come to verbs, and this is a whole other deal. <laughs> and like I say, this is the, we've saved the best to last. In fact, we're going to talk about verbs today. Next week, we'll talk about participles, which is a verbal adjective, and we'll talk about infinitives, which is a verbal noun. Uh, We'll talk about those next week. Then the week after that, the last session, we will be looking at tools, books, apps, websites, um, and I'm not sure what else uh, in there. We'll, we'll, We'll be looking at where do we go from here. That's basically... Now that I've had this class, now that I have a kind of a, a, a grasp of how Greek works, what's my next step, or how what, how can I proceed? Uh, and that's what we're going to do with the last week. But on every single one of the insights for tonight, and next week, and the week after that, we're, all the insights are still going to be verb-related because there, there's just too much to fit into one session on on insights on verbs. And it's not that I'm just going to show you a whole bunch of the same thing, like, well, here's a, here's a passage in Scripture where it does this, and here it does the same thing, uh, you know, and it's a different passage, and here's another passage where it does the same thing. It's not like that. I will have multiple examples. Um, next week we'll have one on participles, but then I'm going to go back to verbs. Mostly it's going to have to do with attributes of verbs, which we're going to talk about here in just a little bit. Um, but it's uses and nuances and precision and stuff like this that is different that the uh, types of action uh, represented by the tenses. It's going to be a whole bunch of different stuff. It's all about verbs, but it's different insights about different things about verbs. Uh, we've seen inflection verbs are, um, you know, we've seen inflection of nouns and pronouns and adjectives and such, but verbs are like, inflection squared <laughs> compared to the rest of the language. So that's why I say we've saved the best to last because this is exciting stuff. When you start looking at what the verbs are telling us, and then because the, well, we'll get into that. The, the basic way we use verbs in English and the basic use of verbs in Greek are entirely different. Once, if you get into the Hebrew class, if we do the Hebrew class in January, you'll find out the verbs are entirely different there too. They're not like the Greek verbs, and they're not like English verbs either. They have a whole different set of behaviors. And so um, this is uh, going to be fun. At least I think it's going to be fun. I don't know. <laughs> if you guys start yawning, then I'll know that it's not as fun as I thought. But I think it's going to be fun because this is good stuff. So uh, no surprises here. We're going to review the alphabet. We'll review the diphthongs. We'll talk about verbs. We'll practice reading from John 1 again, and then we'll do the insights and questions. So let's start here. We'll just uh, you go ahead and say them with me. Alpha, 
beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, eta, theta, iota, kappa, lambda, mu, nu, xi, omicron, pi, rho, sigma, tau, upsilon, phi, chi, psi, omega. All right. You guys are doing real well with all that. And, oh, let's see. We went backwards. We went forwards. Let's do Chinese. We'll start here. <laughs> Just go down this way. All right. This one. Yoda. Lambda. Rho. Upsilon. Gamma. Mu. Sigma. Psi. Chi. Eta. Delta. P. Noon. Theta, kappa, xi, epsilon, phi, beta, alpha, omega, omicron, omicron, tau, omega, zeta. Okay, you guys are doing real well with recognizing them. Okay, the alpha and the yoda together sound like I is in aisle, epsilon yoda. A is in weight or eight. Omicron, iota. Oi is in foil or oil. Upsilon, iota. We is in sweet. Alpha, upsilon. Al is in sauerkraut. Epsilon, upsilon. U is in Feud, yep, and Omicron Upsilon. Who as in through, right. Okay, you guys are doing well. That, and that'll help you with pronunciation. So, as I said, we're going to look at verbs. First, we're going to look at English verbs, and then we're going to look at uh, Greek verbs. English review. The word verb comes from the Latin verbum, which means word. Verbs assert, declare, or predicate something. They're used to express action like eat, run, swim, uh, or being as a is and are, um, or a state of being like I am happy or I am sad. The verb is the workhorse of the sentence. Verbs have characteristics, tense, voice, mood, number, and aspect. In English, the verbs themselves cannot communicate these characteristics on their own, so we use helping words to make the, these characteristics known. So that's, you're going to see that's one of the big changes. In English, we use helping words, and we'll see some of those here in just a little bit. But in Greek, all of that is packed into either, well, a, a suffix, possibly a prefix, and probably what they call an infix, which means something that's stuck in the middle. And so we, the, all of those things can be used. They're not always used, but they can be used uh, in verbs uh, to pack all of this information without the use of helping words. But when translating, you have to use helping words because otherwise you can't uh, communicate what the verb is meaning or saying. Tense in English. The main characteristics of tense is time when. Is, was, did, will be, shall. So we have present Past, past, future, future, for is, uh, was, did, will be, and shall. So basically, yeah. Did it happen, is it happening, or will it happen? Voice is the relationship between the subject and the verb. If the subject does the action, the verb is in the active voice. If the subject receives the action, the verb is in the passive voice. He hit the ball. He is the subject. Hit is the verb. The subject is doing the action, so this is active. And what did he hit? That's the direct object, the ball. He hit the ball. He was hit by the ball. That's passive. The action happened to the subject. He is still the subject, but the action was hit by is happening to the subject. And then the ball is still the direct object. But we have to use the helping words was and by. Was and by helps us to understand that it's passive. Hit all by itself doesn't tell us passive. You know, we almost have to just assume active uh, in uh, in English if uh, we didn't have helping words. Uh, well, that's what we have, the active. 
Mood. Mood is the relationship between the verb and reality. A verb in the indicative mood describes something that is being presented by the speaker or writer as reality. Other moods are used when something may or might be. I am going to the store. That's a statement of reality. And whether I go to the store or not is that I may or I may not. I don't have any plans to tonight. But uh, the statement itself is presented as a reality. I might be going to the store. Well, that's a probability. But it's, you know, it's not a statement of fact. I should go to the store. That's desirable. And I may go to the store. Well, may go to the store. Well, that's a possibility. And I would say that a possibility is less than a probability. You know, if I'm going, that's a statement of fact. If I, if I, uh, if it's a probable, then I may very well go. If it's possible, I may or may not. It might be more likely that I don't. It's like the guy given the weather, you know, and he says, well, it may rain, you know, we got, you know, 30%. Well, there's a, you know, 70% chance that it won't, but 30% chance it will. You know, it, it might. It's <laughs> probabilities, probably not. But, you know, that's we think that's this way all the time in probabilities and regarding reality. Number, singular and plural. I was here. They were here. Notice how the verb changes in English here. doesn't always do that, but... Uh, but here the verb changes to indicate I singular was here, they plural were here. So were and was. We would never say I were there or they was here. Well, you might say they was here. People do that sort of thing, uh, but that's not good. <laughs> it's not good grammar. So this is called agreement when the verb uh, is in agreement with the number of of the uh, the subject um, Singular or plural. Aspect, type of action, completed or con continuous. Um, I've got it right here. Page 21. We have uh, a section here that helps you with the helping words. Uh, last half of the page here. Uh, we have present. Uh, let's just look at completed. Um, I study. Past, I studied. Future, I will study. But continuous action, we would do, I am studying. I was studying. I will be studying. And, of course, in the paragraph right before that, I said Greek is what this is talking about, studying all these, <laughs> all of these. Or it could be the word or it could be Hebrew. If it's anything else, it's probably not as important. Um, active and passive. I, I studied active. Let's look at active. Past simple, I studied. Past progressive, I was studying. Past perfect, I had studied. Passive, I was studied. Past progressive, I was being studied. Past perfect, I had been studied. We don't have to go through all these right now. You can look at these on your own. But you can see that, you know, study and studied, and uh, that terms, there's very little change there, but it's the helping words around it to help you to get the various uh, English tenses, to understand English tense and types of action. English tense by itself does not really convey much in the way of action, type of action. We have to use helping words in English. Okay? Mood. Oh, well, that's the next one here, but that's not up here. Let me see. All right, that's fine. We're going to go ahead and go to Greek, Greek verbs. Verbs in Greek have the same function as in English, meaning a, a type of action or, or being or... Um, Something like that. However, there are ingenious differences on how the characteristics of the verb are packed into the inflections, the patterns of changes made to the word, and what they convey. Greek verbs have five characteristics, tense, voice, mood, person, and number. While helping words are necessary in English, Greek verbs have all their attributes in the inflection of the verb. And inflection can be, as I said a little bit ago, suffixes, always, uh, prefixes, Sometimes, infixes, less, but still, still sometimes, fewer times. Yes, sometimes that's the case. You get these ten-syllable words, and, and most of it has to do with stuff that was added to the beginning or the end or the middle, <laughs> or all, all of that. Uh, let's see. And you compound words, too, and that makes, it, makes them longer. We saw that nouns have declensions. These are families of endings, patterns 
And uh, we've seen those same patterns used with nouns and with adjectives and pronouns and such. Um, so we have declensions with nouns that identify the patterns and how these are used in the in the clause or in the sentence. Uh, like Greek nouns, Greek words, verbs are highly inflected. Verbs have conjugations, patterns of inflection to identify the characteristics of the verbs, tense, voice, mood, person, number. All of these characteristics are going to be in the inflection. When you um, are maybe using a website or an app and you tap on a word to see what it means and maybe it brings up your Strong's Concordance number and the Strong's definition, when it does that, it's not telling you how that word is being used. It's telling you what the root of the verb means. Um, Everything that tells you how that's being used, all this tense, voice, mood, person, and number, everything that's in the inflection has been stripped out. And so when you're looking it up in a dictionary or in Strong's Concordance or something, all you're getting is what the stem, the stem definition is. You're not getting how it should be used. Somebody asked me, how do you know which one of the definitions to use? Well, you, you know, you have to be able to look at it and figure out or, or have a tool that's going to tell you what the inflection is telling you. So what we have is the total meaning equals the lexical meaning. That's the dictionary meaning. That's the stem of the verb all by itself. And then the syntactical meaning, that's the inflection that tells you everything about how it's being used. And then, of course, context is always king in trying to figure out what a word means. We have words like pitch. Pitch. Am I talking about a baseball player throwing a baseball? That's possible. Am I talking about tar? possible. Am I talking about a musical note? It's possible. Am I talking about the slope of a roof? That also is possible. Am I missing something? Or is that all of them? But pitch, so how do you know? you got to go by context. Context is always king when it comes to figuring out what a word means. And other words are like that too. Compact. If it's a noun, maybe it's talking about a small car. If it's a uh, a verb, it might be talking about something that smashes your trash down, <laughs> trash compactor. Uh, or, um, well, let's see, that would also be a noun. I, I guess compact regarding a car would be more of an adjective. Uh, a compact as a noun, that might be a, what a woman has some makeup in. You know, we have these words, they're spelled exactly the same, it's pronounced exactly the same. Other languages do that too. They have words that are spelled the same, but it, they don't all mean the same thing. So most of the time, how do you tell? You tell by context. So context is important. But if you just take the lexical meaning, you don't have the meaning. You don't know what that word means. You don't know how it's supposed to be translated. You don't know how it's being used unless you also looked at the syntactical meaning, which is gathered from the inflection, okay, and other grammatical, uh, not just inflections, but sometimes, uh, well, like last week, we looked at... Uh, uh, prepositions, and you have to look at the object of the preposition to find out what definition of the preposition be used, should be used. Or we looked at pronouns, and if uh, pronouns used in a certain way, it may not be he, it may be self, himself. Or it may be uh, used in a different way, it may be the same. So uh, you have to, so there's grammatical and parts that you have to look at, too, as well as the inflections. Just out of, since I brought up participles, did, or not participles, but pre, um, prepositions, did you guys read the little just-for-fun thing? I know you didn't, Mike, because you didn't have it till till the tonight. Uh, up? The, uh, yeah, do you mean just this evening? I see. If you've all read it, I won't read it. But if you haven't read it, I might just go over it because it's... Or you don't have it? That just shows you the same thing. The reason why I bring it up is because we're talking about things that affect meaning in um, a sentence. And, um, and in the same way, Greek prepositions, you have some basic meanings for the prepositions. But depending upon how they're being used, they can have other definitions as well. So this was something that came from Reader's Digest, August 1970, by Frank S. Endicott. 
We have, we've got a two-letter word we use constantly that may have more meanings than any other. The word is up. It is easy to understand up meaning towards the sky or towards the top of a list. But when we, are wake, we, when we waken, why do we wake up? At a meeting, why does the topic come up? Why do participants speak up? And why are officers up for election? And why is it up to the secretary to write up a report? Often the little word isn't needed, but we use it anyway. We brighten up a room. We light up a cigar. I don't, but polish up the silver, lock up the house, fix up the old car. At other times it has special meanings. People stir up trouble, line up for tickets, work up an appetite, think up excuses, get tied up in traffic. To be dressed is one thing, but to be dressed up is special. It may be confusing, but a drain must be opened up because it is stopped up. We open up a store in the morning and close it up at night. We seem to be mixed up about up. To be up on the proper use of up, look up the word <laughs> in, the, in your dictionary. In one desk-sized dictionary, up takes up half a page. And list of definitions add up to about 40. If you're up to it, you might try building up a list of the many ways in which up is used, and it'll take up a lot of your time. But if you don't give up, you may wind up with a thousand. So it's <laughs> a very clever article. And that's, I don't know, probably true in a number of languages, but I don't, I'm not an expert in those. I only know that uh, in Greek, prepositions can take additional meanings besides the, the, the common ones. Okay. So we're going to look at the attributes. We've talked about tense, voice, mood, person, number. What does that mean when we're talking about Greek verbs? That's what, we'll just take the easy ones first. Person. It's easy because it's exactly the same in English. Uh, there are three persons, exactly the same as English, first, second, and third persons. Uh, person expresses who is related to the action. Person speaking, the person addressed, someone or something else is being spoken about. Um, I, you, he, she, it. Number. Number is exactly the same as English. Singular and plural to express whether the action is being done by one or more than one. And in Hebrew, they actually have a dual. They have singular, dual, and plural. So if there's two, like a yoke of oxen, or two eyes, or two ears, two hands, they'll use the dual uh, form. That's free. No extra charge for that. Person in the number chart. First, second, and third person. I, you, he, she, it. Singular, plural. We, y'all, and they. And I left out all y'all. That's the plural y'all. <laughs> All y'all. I was a. I worked in IT uh, till I retired, and um, I was in Little Rock. The company I worked for was based out of Little Rock, Arkansas. We sold software internationally, and there were some guys from Australia there, and uh, they were talking about how we talk funny. Of course, they're from Australia, and they're talking about how we talk funny. But the, but then they zeroed in on this you all this and you all that. Uh, down in Arkansas. I said, well, do you know what the plural of you all is? And they, no, but that was plural. I said, no, it's all y'all. They said, all y'all. They, they thought I was pulling their leg. Well, the, 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 the sessions down in Little Rock were a week long, and we came, came together Friday, and they specifically made a beeline to me. They said, you know what? We were at the restaurant last night, and the waitress came up and said, is there anything else I can get for all y'all? <laughs> and they were floored. They thought it was something I made up. But no, that's, that's it. A verb must agree with the subject and person and number. If the sing subject is singular, the verb must also be singular. So if it's like Jesus said, then Jesus is singular, and he said, the word for said, also has to be singular. If it's a group of people and they said to Jesus, then it's a plural subject, and the verb also has to reflect uh, uh, plural uh, in it. Um, it does this by inflection, adding personal endings to the end of the verb. Since there are three persons, first, second, and third, and two numbers, singular and plural, that means that each verb has six sets of endings for a given tense, voice, and mood. So there's going to be six possible endings to a verb just looking at person and number. You're going to have more than that for tense, voice, and mood. An uh, example is at the bottom, page 24. Most of the time when you're looking at grammars uh, or examples on the Internet 
or something, you're going to find they use luo. It says, uh, bottom of 24, we have first, second, third persons. Luo. Well, go ahead and say it with me. Luo. Luace. Lue. Luamen. Luate. Luusi. And so, uh, or it could be, depends on what the next word starts with. It could be a noon at the end. A new, not noon. Noon is Hebrew, sorry. New, it could have a new at the end of it. Uh, Luusin. Um, but those are first, second, third, singular, plural, anything that is present, active, indicative. Okay. Present is the tense. Active is the voice. Indicative is the mood. We'll we'll talk more about this later. You don't have to memorize any of this stuff. You don't have to memorize it. All you have to say is, okay, I'm getting a grasp of how it works. Then we're meeting our goal. That's that's all you need, uh, how to meet your goal here. You're being exposed to the information. You don't have to memorize it, this, but this is how it works. We just need to get how it works. Um, well, there's most verbs end with omega, the lexical form, so like luo. Um, there are some that end with end with me, mu, iota. Um, then there are the active, so you're going to have a set for the active forms. You're going to have a set for the passive. Um, and then you're going to have a set for um, thinking how to put this. Let's just say augmented forms. Let's just use that. When you, when you have a prefix at the beginning, that would be an augmented form. When you have augment, then you'd also have an active and a passive set for augmented forms. So I'm not sure how. And, of course, every one of those is going to have a first, second, third, singular, and plural. Uh, it's not always the same, but there's similarities. It's not like you. It's a whole lot easier to remember uh, if you're just going to take, if you want to learn Greek, and use the diagnostic method, which is what I learned, to to read Greek, then it's easier to learn some charts and memorize the charts, just like this luo, luace, lue, lumen, luate, luisi. You're going to remember, remember that, and you'll say everything's present, active, indicative. It's going to end with these. And then you say, okay, but for the, for the uh, passive, it's going to be these endings. And for uh, if it's a, a past tense and it's augmented, has a prefix on it, then it's going to have these endings if it's active, but it's going to have these endings if it's passive. And so, but then once you've got those, and that can also affect these a little bit. There'll be a little bit of difference um, with these suffixes. But it's a whole lot easier than do that than learn, I don't know, one time I counted them up. I don't remember how many hundreds of verb forms are possible. <laughs> it's a lot. But you just look for these indicators, and we'll do some of that um, as we look at stuff tonight. So anyway, with luo, the reason we use lu, it means I loose. There's nothing special about it. I think it's only used like 46 times. I probably have that in here somewhere. Um, but the reason why it's used is that it doesn't change. It's pretty steady with all of its forms. And so it's just a real easy, and you have two letters, and then you can put whatever you want to onto it. So you, use, you see luo used a lot for uh, examples, uh, for the inflections, the conjugations. Let's see. Okay. Okay, oftentimes where there's no noun in the nominative case, you've you got a sentence, you're looking at a verse, and you say, I don't see a, a, a subject anywhere because I'm looking for the nominative case. Well, a lot of times the subject will actually be built into the verb because it's going to have a personal number. It's going to be he said, and they don't have to have a pronoun he. All they have to do is use the third person singular form of the verb. And he said so, or loosed would be like lu a for he loosed. Well, you don't actually have to have a subject. So that's something to keep in keep in in the back of your head. Um, let's see. Instead of using a subject as a and a pronoun, you'll find the subject in, in the inflected personal endings of the verb. When you do see a pronoun with 
a verb that's indicating the uh, person and number. It's oftentimes emphatic. It's done for emphasis, and we have one of those in our insights. I'll point that out when we get to that. I'll show you what it looks like. It might sound like a lot. When you see it, you go, oh, I got it. I get it. That's easy. Voice. Okay, so we looked at person, number, voice indicates how the subject relates to the verb. We talked about that a little bit ago in English. Voice is determined by the inflection of the verb. Active. John hit the ball. I'm sorry, John. We have somebody here by name, John. <laughs> I wasn't picking on you. I just, uh, Elvis hit the ball. <laughs> So that's the subject is doing the action. Passive, the subject receives the action. John was hit by the ball. And middle, the subject acts on himself or itself or for itself or himself. John hit himself or John hit for himself. You know, he, it was his turn to bat and he got up. He maybe he'd uh, been uh, injured and so he, somebody else was batting for him in his place. But he hit for himself. So anyway, middle... Um, Middle shares a component of active in that the subject is doing the action, but it also shares a component of passive in that the action is happening to the subject. <laughs> so it's a, it's kind of a mix of active and passive. Um, active and passive ter are terms that we can relate to in English, but middle is a bit more foreign. So we'll look at to this usage in Greek. Oh, there it is. That's the same thing I just said. The middle voice shares attributes with active and passive voices. So subject performs the action just like active. Middle does that too. Passive shares with middle, uh, middle shares with passive that the subject is the focus of the action. So here's a in duo. In duo. I put on, I clothe. We know it's I because this, here's the omega. We looked at luo. We know omega is first person singular, right? So here's... Uh, I put on, in Luke 15:22, Kai is and, and Jusate, Altan. Um, and clothe him. I don't think that makes sense because that looks to me. See, here's a here's a good example. Then we don't have anything. Here's the word. We don't have anything added to the front. No prefix. Okay, so uh, it's not a um, uh, it's not a uh, what I call it a little bit ago an augmented word. We have a sigma that's probably future, and so um, and clothe him. I'd have to look that up and see what... There's not enough context here. But anyway, here's clothe yourself. Um, this would be active. This is probably passive. Okay, and yeah. Okay, and clothe him. All right. And then this is clothe yourself. Colossians 3:12. But you can see how the form... You can see this is down here but the omega gets dropped. And then down here, we have a different ending yet. But, but this part, the endu part, is here in all cases. That's the stem. All right, let's move on. Middle continued. All right. Sometimes the middle and passive forms are the same. Yeah. There are 3,726 middle verbs in the New Testament. Some words have a lexical form. Uh, that means when you look it up in the dictionary, the lexical form, that appears to be middle and passive. In the past, they called these deponents, and they were treated as active. However, the newest research is showing that words that they've been calling deponents aren't really active. They really are something that has to do with, uh, the, it really does have a middle function. For instance, um, words like um, um, to stand. Well, if I stand... I am now standing. I've affected myself. It's not just not just active as something I'm doing, but I've affected myself. See what I mean? Um, see what's another good example? Um, to know something. To know something. Once you do the action of knowing something, you've learned something well, then you're still in that state of having learned it. You know, it's, it's something that 
is now a part of you. You've learned it. So there's the um, middle is sometimes used and it'll look like it's active possibly. But when you consider what the word is actually meaning and what's going on with it, there's a number of these where it's actually something where you're doing something on behalf of yourself anyway. And I agree with that. That makes a lot of sense. The papers I've read, the stuff I've heard, lectures I've heard on on that, uh, I think that people are going to get away from this deponent. Uh, that was something that was taught. When I learned Greek, you just learned deponents. That's a deponent. Here's the deponent form. But uh, I don't think it's going to be very long, and you're probably never even going to hear that word anymore. But I, re- I mentioned it, and I have it in the notes, because you may read something that's a little bit older, and it'll use that term. And you go, what is a deponent? Well, you can go back to the notes, and you can see, okay, that's something that has been considered. They are considering it active, even though it's got a middle form. Um, but it's probably really is has some kind of middle, middle um, feature to the, to the verb by itself, the meaning of the verb. Mood. Sad. Happy verbs, sad verbs, happy trees. No, it's not about that. Mood is the feature of the verb that presents the verbal action state with reference to its actuality or potentiality. A statement is being presented by the speaker writer as a fact, as a probability, as a possibility, as a command or wish. There are four moods in Greek, indicative, subjunctive, optative, and imperative. Uh, Page 23, we have a list of the moods, and it lists the number of occurrences. You're going to find that the indicative mood is by far used the most. The indicative is the is something is presented as reality. There. And so it's used 15,618 times in the New Testament. The subjunctive is probability, uh, which is an optative is possibility. So this is much more firm than this. Subjective is much more firm than optative. Optative was actually on its way out. I don't know if I have a slide on that. It is in here, though. Uh, it occurs only 68 times in the New Testament. It was being phased out at the time of the writing of the New Testament. Uh, subjective was taking over some of that um, usage at that time. Languages change, and even during the time of Koine Greek, it changed some. And an imperative, that's a command. So we have uh, page 23, we have the four moods, a generic description of their usage and the number of occurrences. Page 23 also lists some examples of word inflection changes and the impact it has on meaning and translation. Um, yeah, so we have our word luo again, but in this case we have luace, that's the indicative, uh, you are loosing. That's a certain thing you is saying you are loosing. Whether you're doing it or not, that's it's presented that way. But the subjunctive we have luace, but it's a eta with a yoda subscript. That's a, you might be loosing or you should be loosing. Optative is the possibility you may be loosing. Luois and lue is the imperative. It's a command. Loose. Do it. So those are the examples of mood. And there's a lot of other uses, and we will be looking at some of those, like I say, today, next week, and the week after in the insights. We're going to be all around verbal stuff, verb stuff, in all of the uh, insights for the remainder of the uh, sessions that we have. Tense. This is a big one. The Greek language has seven verb tenses, present, aorist, imperfect, future, perfect, and pluperfect, and a future perfect. And it has all of the number of times it's used. Future perfect was also on its way out. It's, it really only occurs in the New Testament in regards to to be verbs in a kind of a predicate way. So by itself, it doesn't occur at all. That it's, but it occurs in conjunction with some other things. Um, In regards to Greek New Testament, the pluperfect tense was on its way out of normal usage as well. Uh, the future perfect tense almost non-existent. While the main purpose in, of tense in English is to identify time when, in English that's what it's all about. Did it happen? Is it happening? Is it going to happen? That's what tense is all about in English. In Greek, that is not the most important thing. Uh, the most important thing in Greek is aspect, the type of action. 
Now, verbs do communicate time when, but only in the indicative mood. I don't have that up there. Only in the indicative mood does verb have time when. In any other case, or not case, in any other usage, um, if it's subjunctive, if it's optative, if it's imperative, time has nothing to do with it. Now, in participles, they can be related to the time of the verb, maybe like happening concurrently or before or after the action of the verb, but you have to go back to the verb and find out what the time is, what the time when is, if it's past, present, or future. So you can use all these tenses and not have any, any expression of time at all. But in the indicative mood, which is the one that's used the most, that does contain time when. Aspect is the type of action. The main purpose of the Greek tense is not time when, like English. Greek verbs always, always, when you're, when you're talking about languages, you say something is always, you almost can't say that. It's like, I, I, never, I never speak um, in absolutes. I always use generalities. <laughs> uh, you don't hardly do that when you're talking about, well, you say, well, this is the way it usually works. Um, but when, this is a case where Greek word, verbs always express the type of action. Uh, the tense does. The tense always expresses the type of action. I should probably have tense in there. Greek verb tenses always express the type of action. But can express time when only in an indicative mood. When time when is expressed in an indicative mood, time is like English, past, present, or future. The types of action that you can have in Greek, they have three aspects. Linear, uh, which is either continuous or repeated action, Undefined, which is just a completed or summary type of action, and a combination of both completed and linear, and that's called perfective. So linear, we have like a straight line here showing something that's happening over a course of time. In the beginning was the word. Was, that's a linear in the past. Ain was linear in the past. Uh, or, you know, pray without ceasing. That would be more of the uh, repeated action, pray without ceasing. The word that's used there for without ceasing in Philippians has been found in other writings, and it was used in a medical thing about somebody who had a cough, and they had this this un, unceasing cough. That doesn't mean they went, <coughs> you can only do that for so long. That isn't what it meant, but just, <coughs> that would be an unceasing. And, our prayers should also be the same way. It doesn't mean that you're constantly praying, but it means that you, it should never be said that you stop praying, you know, but your, your prayers are happening, you know, on a regular basis. Uh, that would be uh, praying without ceasing. That was free. No extra charge for that insight either. Because uh, I haven't really been doing, see, that comes under the category of word study, and we haven't been doing word studies. We've been looking at, at grammar, syntax, and, and insights from that. So anyway, these are the types of action as the continual action, the uh, repeated action. Those are both linear. And then we have the undefined action. This is by and, by, and, uh, by and large the preference when it's talking about something that happened in the past. But there are past events. There is a tense. The imperfect tense actually uses this. And it's usually if you see something that is not just simple completed uh, action in the past that so should catch your attention. Go, ah, oh, there's something special I should be picking up here. Then perfective, it's looking at a completed action with an ongoing effect or an ongoing state. We're going to look at that too. That's another one. If you see a perfect tense used, why did the writer use the perfect tense? He had a perfectly good, perfectly good. That's a that's a pun. <laughs> he had a perfectly good reason for using the perfect tense, just as he would have used uh, the uh, linear tense in the for a past event also. Linear. I run. I am running. I was running. Uh, or you could say I will be running. That would be future. But anyway, you have uh, this gives us the view that the running takes place over a period of time. Uh, it was continuous or repeated action. The Greek tense, the Greek tense is indicating linear, the continual or repeated action, or the present and imperfect. Undefined action, or it's, which could be looked at as completed action, or sometimes it's called perfective action also. Uh, some grammars will say that. It's a summary. Uh, I ran, well, I may, it may have been a 50-yard dash. It may have been a marathon or something in between. Yeah, it doesn't tell you anything about the beginning or the end. It just says it happened. Um, 
you can see the this type of tense used referring to the 40 years in the wilderness or 400 years of slavery. The length of time doesn't matter. It's looking at the whole thing in one in one piece without any uh, looking at the end of the, the end or the beginning. The action is undefined, completed, or summary, and the Greek tenses indicating this type of action are the aorist and the future. And the future can have more of a linear, but that's not the norm. Most of the time when you see a future tense, it's going to be this undefined type of action. Perfective action is a combination of both completed and linear, meaning that the uh, completed action has an ongoing present state that is dependent upon the past action that took place. Perfective action doesn't have a good English equivalent. That's why we have commentaries, teachers, and that's why we learn Greek. The Greek tenses indicating this type of action are perfect and pluperfect. When a verb is in the indicative mood, it also has the meaning of time when. And we have uh, on page 24 how the tenses are related to time. Um, time when. When in, the, when in the indicative mood. I'm going to have to move on. That's in the middle of the page. Greek verbs. An illustration to help the view with the different types of action aspects. Watching a parade. From the street, that is the internal view. That's another word you'll see in grammars. The internal view. You're in amongst it. So you're standing on the street corner and you see the parade as a continuous action. It's linear. It's not focusing on the beginning or the end. You're watching a consecutive flow of events. Okay. But if from the blimp, this would be the external view, you see the complete parade as one event. You can see the beginning, you can see the end, you can see everything in between because you're up up there. Uh, you're, you're not focusing on the internal makeup. And if you walk down the street after the parade and the horses have already gone by and you have to clean it up, then you see the completed action and the ongoing fact <laughs> of having had horses in the parade. Okay? Uh, the verbs lexical... Dictionary form is usually present, active, indicative, first person, singular. So if you look up luo, that is actually what you see is luo. If you want to look up luace, you'll have to get an analytical dictionary to, to see that because uh, most dictionaries are only going to have the present, active, indicative, indicative, first person, singular. The present, active, indicative forms are listed at the bottom of 24. We already looked at that. The stem provides the lexical meaning. The inflection provides the syntactical meaning. Different tenses, voices, and moods have different types of inflection by either adding a prefix, adding a tense infix, or changing the personal endings and the suffix. Okay, so that's, you know, we got about 10 minutes. I'm going to let you guys practice reading. Are you guys practicing reading Greek? Are you, is that going okay for you? Or do we need to do, we need to do practice here? How do you feel about it? It's going Okay. Practice here, okay. Can we read it together instead of pronouncing after me? Okay. N, arche, ain, ha, lagos, kai, ha, lagos, ain, pros, tan, theon, kai, theos, ain, ha, lagos, hutas, ain, n, arche, Pros tan theon. Panta de autu agenata kai choris autu agenata ude hen, rough breathing, ha gegenen. En auto zoe ein e kai. Hey, I got. I started translating. I could quit. I got, <laughs> uh, hey, Zoe, aim, ta, phos, tone, anthropone, kai, ta, phos, en, te, scatia, fine, kai, hey, scatia, auta, u, katelaben. Agenata, anthropos, apastalmenos, para, theu, anima, auto, ioanes, hutas, eothen, ace, marturion, hina, marturese, peri, 
tu, photos, hena, pantas, pestusosen, de, altu, uk, ein, akenos, ta, fos, al, hena, marcherese, peri, tu, photos, ein, I'm sorry, yeah, that's right, ein, ta, fos, ta, alethanon, ha, fotidze, panta, anthropon, erkamanon, es, ton, cosmon. All right. I know it's helpful to hear it, and so I'm okay with doing that. And we kind of went through it fast, uh, but we'll, we'll do it some more. We still have two more sessions. Okay, so insights. I, I told you we'd have an example of this. We actually looked at this last week in, in dealing with uh, emphatic use of pronouns. And we have it again here, but now that we've talked about verbs, uh, I just want to go over this again. Mark 1.8, uh, the New King James says, I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We look at this, we see I, ego is I, but this ebaptisa, we see an augment, because baptize, let's see, here's, here's baptize over here, we see it starts with a beta, but over here it's got an epsilon in front, that's what's called an augment, that means this is going to be uh, a past tense, we see the augment here, we have a sigma here, ah, we know that that is an aorist active indicative, and it's first person singular, so it's saying I I baptize you, and when you have a pronoun and you have it in the verb, that is emphasis. I, I baptize you with water. But he, we have it again here. He, but he, and here's the sigma, but we don't have a, a an augment, so this is future. So that's, this is the diagnostic method when you learn all these different things. You guys don't have to know this, but this is how it's put together. So this is the future tense, and this is uh, third person singular. So, but... But he, he will baptize, since it's future, he will baptize you in the Spirit or with the Spirit, holy, with the Holy Spirit. And so we have it emphasized, I baptize you, uh, but he, he will baptize you. We can make it in bold letters or we can underline it or something like that. It's emphatic. Now, in the New King James up here, they said, I indeed. Well, there's no word for indeed, but, they're, but by the use of indeed, they're trying to show that it's emphasized, Right? But if, well, and you know, and they could have done the same thing. I indeed baptize you with water, with water, but he indeed will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then we had, you know, the second part would also show the emphasis. Uh, but um, but it doesn't it isn't there. But here again is just a case where, you know, there's nothing wrong with the translation. Translation's fine, but there's emphasis involved that we don't see in the translation sometimes. And here it's with only one of them. There are other translations, they don't put the indeed in there. They say, I baptize you with the water and he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it's just a statement of fact like that. And that's true. There's nothing wrong with it, but you would miss the emphasis without knowing Greek. But that's a place where we can see, you know, here's a change. It's got the epsilon on the front. It's got a sigma. Towards the end, that's past. This has got a sigma towards the end. Nothing on the front. This is future, and that's that's how you read, uh, how you use the diagnostic method to read Greek. We talked about the perfect tense. John nineteen thirty. New King James says it is finished. This, of course, Jesus on the cross said it. Tetelestai is the word. It's one word. We get it is finished out of this one word. It's actually too complete to, to meet a goal, to, to finish something. This is what teleo means. It's used 28 times in the New Testament. But this one, we see you've got, it looks like it stuttered, te, te. It, it took the first two letters and added them to the front. That's a sure sign of a perfective tense. That's, that is an augment on the front. And you say, oh, well, I see this. They call it reduplication, which reduplication sounds like redundant to me. <laughs> reduplication. Um, but this is a perfect. It's a perfect passive. And so it, it is finished. 
But what this means is it is finished. It is a completed action with an ongoing state of being finished. It was finished. It has been finished. It is finished. And it will still be in a state of being finished in the future. The sacrifice of Jesus. And he said it is finished. Rome is wrong. You don't have to keep the Mass. The Mass is not a sacrifice. Jesus does not have to be sacrificed over and over and over again. He said it is finished. And it remains in the state. So it is finished. It's a completed action. It's something he did on the cross. And then it has this ongoing state of being completed. It is still completed. To this day, it's still completed. Okay? So that's a place where the perfect tense is, uh, is important to understand. Negative commands. Some negative commands are future indicatives. Uh, these are often quotations from the Old Testament. So the New King James for Matthew 19:18, you shall not. This is talking to the rich young ruler. And he says, what good thing must I do? And he says, you know, the commandments, uh, keep those and you'll live. And he says, which ones? And so Jesus says, you shall not murder or you will not murder. This is a case where it's future. Every one of these is a future. Here's the sigma before the ending. There's the sigma before the ending. All these are ace, so these are uh, second-person singulars, ace, ace, ace. But we have a sigma, sigma. In this case, the sigma combined, uh, that's, uh, that's the word uh, klepsase. That's the word that uh, we get, the word kleptomaniac. You probably heard about the kleptomaniac. He says, when I feel it coming on, I take something for it. So <laughs> Anyway. Not, not you will steal. That's that's what it means. Not you will steal. Not you will be a false witness. So this is yeah. Not you will murder. Not you will commit adultery. Not you will steal. Not you will be a false witness. And so these are all future tenses to tell you something you should not do. Uh, okay, I got that right here. Not you. Will, okay, I just did the same thing. And then Matthew six five. Not you will be as the hypocrites. Uh, it's, again, the future tense. You will not be, uh, and the New King James says, you shall not be like the hypocrites. Shall and will both indicate a future. Okay. Arist, subjunctive, to prohibit the beginning. Of, this is where some of the fun stuff comes in. Uh, arist, that's the tense. Subjunctive is the mood. When you find that in a negative command, it has the meaning of prohibiting the beginning of an action. Don't even start. Don't even think about it. It's prohibiting even going there, okay, when it's an error subjunctive. So in Mark 10:19 and Luke 18:20, same context as what we read in the previous slide. Uh, Jesus talking to the rich young ruler, but Jesus is probably talking to him in Hebrew or Aramaic and is being translated by the gospel writers into Greek, and they took different ways of doing it. One used uh, future tense as a command, like, like we have in the Old Testament, and then the Septuagint. Septuagint does the same thing. Uh, but in this case, they're saying, don't even, don't even think about it. Don't even start murdering. Don't even think about it. Don't even start committing adultery. Don't even start stealing. Don't even start being a false witness. And so this is prohibiting the beginning of the action. Don't even start. Matthew 120, uh, Joseph, son of David, don't even start being afraid to take Mary for the wife of you, for you as your wife. So it's interesting to see the contrast here. Well, look, this will be contrasted with a couple of slides down the road. But these are all don't even start. Some more. This uh, error subjunctive prohibit the beginning of action. Uh, John 3, 7. Do not marvel. This is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Uh, not, don't even start marveling uh, that I said to you, it is necessary day. It is necessary for you to be born again or born from above. Um, John was told in Revelation 22.10 not to seal up. It doesn't just say don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Uh, the, the New King James says do not seal. This is don't even start to seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Okay. Now, 
I'm going to contrast that to a present imperative. Present is the tense this time. Imperative is the mood this time, not aorist subjunctive. Present imperative forbids the continuance of an action or a state. So in John 2:16, the New King James says, Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. But this is saying, stop making the house of my father the house of merchandise. Emporium. I don't use the word. The word emporium comes from this word. Uh, so don't, uh, or stop. It's not saying don't even start. They, they were. The action had already started. We get that. We get that from the context. But in Greek, it's so specific and so precise. And it tells us, if you didn't know the context, you could still say, okay, he's telling them to stop doing something they're already process of doing. This is a good one because we have both of them in here. Acts 18.9, New King James, do not be afraid, do not keep silent. This is the Lord telling Paul to continue to be encouraged with uh, what he's doing. Uh, And the Lord said to him at night in a vision to Paul, stop being afraid. Oh, Paul wouldn't be afraid. Not Paul the super apostle. No, he was. Stop being afraid. This This is the present imperative. Stop being afraid, but speak and don't even start being silent. <laughs> so we have both a present imperative and an aorist subjunctive here. We have the word may as the negative on both of them. This is an imperative and this is a subjunctive. So it's saying, quit being afraid. Don't even start being silent. Some more uh, present imperatives that forbid the continuance. Romans 12:19. do not avenge yourselves. Stop avenging yourselves. Do not Continue avenging yourselves. This is yourselves, not avenging yourselves. Luke 2.10, New King James. Um, do not be afraid. In fact, is, most of the time, this is, most of the time when you see don't be afraid, it, most of the time it's stop doing something you're in the process of doing. Most of the time. Uh, don't be afraid. Behold, I announce to you, um, um, Joy, great, uh, smooth that out. Stop being afraid. For behold, I announce to you a great joy which shall lead to all the people. Leo, you've heard of laity. That's where we get lao. We get uh, laos is the uh, word. And that's uh, where we get the word laity, that the people, to all great joy to all people. So stop being afraid. Another interesting one here was the present imperative forbids the continuance. John 20, 17, Jesus rose from the dead and is appearing to Mary Magdalene. And he tells her in the King James Version, touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my father. The new King James does a little bit better, says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. And the New American Standard Bible probably hits the nail on the head saying, stop clinging to me. <laughs> it's stop something you're already in the process of doing. I've seen it portrayed where Jesus appears to Mary and she starts to reach for him and he jumps back and says, oh, no, don't touch me. That's not what he said. I just talked about this, what, about a month or a month and a half ago when I, when I taught on Sunday morning. I was teaching from John chapter 20. And uh, so I brought this up. So if it sounds familiar, yes, you heard this just recently. Um, but, yeah, stop doing something you're already in the process of doing. Uh, she was already had already grabbed his feet. She was hanging on to him. She thought she lost him once. She was not going to let him go again. Uh, something else he says here, though. Um, he says, uh, stop holding on to me, for I have not yet ascended. See the bebe? This is a reduplication. This is a perfect. Uh, the perfect tense is used. When he said, I have not yet ascended, he was saying, I have not yet ascended. Does it, does it mean he had not been to heaven yet? No, it doesn't mean that at all. What it means is, I have not yet ascended as a completed action with the ongoing effect of staying ascended. And that ongoing state, and he did, you know, it was like 40 days later, Acts chapter 1, he rose, uh, or ascended, he rose from the dead, he had spent 40 days um, with the disciples, and then he um, and then he was, he was ascended, and he is still in this state to this day, he is a, his ascension is a completed action with ongoing state. He is at the right hand of the Father to this day. Okay. All right. That's it. Any questions from today's?
or any day. Okay. So you see the tense and voice and mood, in these cases mostly tense and mood, uh, have specific meanings for uh, nuances or precision that uh, isn't always obvious in the translations. So to uh, you can review the, the lesson notes. I covered everything quickly here. There's more detail in the notes. Uh, some of the a lot of the information is going to be the same though. But the notes will help you to get it, and that's the most important thing. Just just get it. Okay. Verbs have stuff added to the end in the middle. Can have something in the middle. Oftentimes we'll have something added to the front, and that tells you how the how the uh, verb is being used. So stay on top of the alphabet and diphthongs, all that kind of stuff. You can practice reading John 1, and we'll go over it a couple more times um, in the next couple of weeks. And that's it. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. I, I think it's cool stuff. I <laughs>